This morning's gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to John, the sixth chapter, verses 30 to 35, found on page 92 in the New Testament of your Pew Bibles. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate their manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As many of you know, in my other job, I'm an eating disorder therapist. The clients I work with all have different types of disordered eating and occupy bodies of all shapes and sizes. Almost universally, however, they've bought into common cultural myths about what and what not to eat. All of us can't help but be influenced by these myths. When I was growing up, the main message was that we should limit fat and cholesterol in our diets. Diet products like light salad dressing and those Snackwell cookies capitalized on this message by developing products that cut fat while using sugar to maintain flavor. Back then, nobody was afraid of sugar or carbs because they tend to be low in fat and cholesterol. What a difference a decade makes. Once the 2000s rolled around and the country's obesity rates continued to climb, people decided that maybe cutting out fat wasn't the answer. Given people's propensity for eating too many chips and cookies, maybe we should be cutting out carbs instead. That idea spawned a vast industry of low-carb products and diets, including Atkins and South Beach brands. Even though this trend hasn't improved health any more than that low-fat craze that came before it, it continues to dominate throughout popular media and culture. It would be my client's worst nightmare to hear God promise to rain bread from heaven. <laughs> Carbs might as well be the devil. But I'll let you in on a little secret. First, carbs aren't the devil. They're the body's main source of energy and particularly crucial for the brain, which also happens to be made of 60% fat. For those keeping score at home, our competing low-fat and low-carb diet myths are batting zero for two when it comes to brain health. <laughs> Second, cutting out any category of food, particularly food that tastes good, tends to backfire. A sense of deprivation, whether physical or emotional, is the biggest predictor of overeating. The more we try to forbid ourselves from eating something, the more likely we are to get too much of it when we inevitably encounter it again. Here's how a dietitian I worked with explained it. Sometimes people put out a candy dish in their home for guests that might drop by. I know my grandmother always had a glass dish on one of her end tables with little pieces of wrapped candy in it. And even my mom, who doesn't have a sweet tooth at all, has a bowl of dark chocolate pieces sitting on her piano. 
you probably know people who do something similar. You might also have noticed, particularly if you're someone who has a candy dish, that some people who visit take one or two or maybe none at all, while other people can't seem to stop reaching for piece after piece after piece. The difference between these people isn't that some folks just have more self-control. The difference is that the people who eat little, if any, of the candy probably allow themselves to have candy when they're in the mood for candy, while those who eat a lot of it probably allow them, don't allow themselves to have any candy and do their best not to have it at all. Feeling deprived and then being exposed to a tasty food makes us prone to eating a lot of it because it's a scarcity in our lives. We don't know when or if we'll ever have it again, and so we feel pressure to make the most of the opportunity while it's there. A sense of scarcity is a powerful force that can reorient our values and intentions. The events in Exodus that we heard about this morning occur because the Israelites are experiencing a sense of scarcity and deprivation. Although they left East Egypt with livestock and other sources of nourishment, they're used to an agrarian lifestyle rather than the nomadic one that they've been forced to adopt. Now, without the ability to grow crops, to feed their livestock, and to bake into bread, they're afraid they're going to starve to death. This fear of what the future holds makes them long for those bad old days in Egypt. As they survey the desert around them, they complained to Moses and Aaron that God should have killed them in Egypt, where they had plenty of meat and bread, rather than leading them into the wilderness to starve to death. We struggle with a similar fear of scarcity today. For some of us, it's scarcity of food, while for others, it's scarcity of other things. As Lynn Twist writes, we spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We're not thin enough, we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough, or fit enough, or educated, or successful enough, or rich enough, ever. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds race with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. Think for a minute about what that sense of something lacking might be for you. My clients live with this feeling of inadequacy all day, every day. They may say that it's about not being thin enough, but the truth is that they're secretly hoping that by getting thin enough, They'll erase the feeling of not-enoughness. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, and it can't work that way. But we begin to learn from the Israelites what can help us overcome our human fear of scarcity. We find the first hints at the answer when we think about God's response to the Israelites' complaints. Instead of responding with anger and frustration at the lack of faith the Israelites are showing less than three months after their miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt, God responds by meeting their felt need. God sends quails in the evening for meat and provides manna every morning, a new sort of bread meal that was never seen before or since. 
However, even while providing for their needs, God uses manna as an opportunity for faith formation. That's what the passage means when it says that God was testing the Israelites. God created the conditions for the people to learn to trust and rely on God so that they would develop the capacity to enter into the covenant relationship that God hopes to form with them. Here's how it worked. Each morning, the people could gather as much manna as they needed for the day until the sun got too hot and it melted away. Even though some of them gathered more and some of them gathered less, in the end, they all had exactly enough. I'm reminded a little bit of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. When each person measured the manna that they had gathered, they found that it was just right. The real challenge was that they had to use it up the same day, trusting that more would be available tomorrow. If they tried to hoard some away out of fear of scarcity, which must have been a strong temptation after a lifetime of slavery, the leftover manna got wormy and rotten. The one exception was on the sixth day, the Israelites were to gather enough manna for two days, since there would be none on the seventh day, a Sabbath day of rest. On the Sabbath, whatever had been stored overnight from the previous day did not go bad. This is the Israelites' first experience with a day of rest and must have been a very foreign concept to former slaves. And it was also hard for the people to trust so some of them still went out on the seventh day to gather before they learned through experience that in this too, God could be trusted and God would provide. In this way, day after day, week after week, the Israelites were forming their identity as God's chosen people. God was even laying the foundations for God's kingdom through an equitable and just distribution of resources. Because at least as far as food was concerned, no one had too little or too much. For 40 years, everyone got an amount that was just right. In the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And we're reminded of the justice manifested through manna. That every day, God gives us exactly what we need. And we're voicing our trust that God will provide again tomorrow. We're also reiterating the call for God's kingdom to come, bringing to fruition the vision of a just and faithful community. Unfortunately, God no longer rains down tangible bread from heaven to help us form in us the justice and faith that transformed Israel into God's chosen people. However, God does still meet that need in us. As we learn through Jesus' reinterpretation of the manna story in John's Gospel. To set the stage, this passage comes the day after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Another example of God miraculously providing exactly what each person needs, with plenty to spare and no sign of scarcity. Jesus wanted to be alone after performing this miracle and traveled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. However, some of the crowd go looking for him. Jesus gets a bit frustrated when they find him, knowing that they are only looking for him because he fed them, not because they want a relationship with God. When he points this out to them, 
they ask him to give them a sign that he is truly sent by God, saying, what work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat. Wasn't yesterday's miracle enough for them? It seems to me like they're just trying to trick Jesus into giving them more food. <laughs> Instead, Jesus continues to offer them the better gift of a relationship with God. He shifts the focus from a past miracle to a present reality, telling them that while God gave manna to the Israelites in the wilderness, God sends true bread from heaven to give life to the world. They still don't seem to get it and ask again for bread. So finally, Jesus spells it out. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This message isn't about the literal bread Jesus' listeners are so fixated on. The message is that God, through Jesus, overcomes that inherent sense of scarcity that drives so many of our human anxieties. The author I cited earlier, Lynn Twist, argues that the antidote to scarcity isn't a search for abundance, but a mindset of sufficiency. She writes, we each have a choice in any setting to step back and let go of the mindset of scarcity. Once we let go of scarcity, we discover the surprising truth of sufficiency. By sufficiency, I don't mean a quantity of anything. Sufficiency isn't a measure of barely enough or more than enough. Sufficiency isn't an amount at all. It's an experience, a knowing that there is enough and that we are enough. Sufficiency resides inside each of us. This sense of sufficiency is what God offers through Jesus Christ. It's rooted in the history of God's provision of manna to the Israelites, the bread that rained from heaven. It continues through God's self-giving act of incarnation in Jesus Christ and carries forward through the church's participation in Christ, the bread of life, in the Eucharist. God's gift of bread is not only a past miracle, but also a present reality, offering both physical and spiritual nourishment to those who partake. Our ongoing work in response is to learn to walk in God's ways to allow ourselves to be shaped and formed by this bread into people of God and citizens of God's kingdom. On the personal level, we're challenged to trust God's ongoing provision even as we inhabit uncertain, difficult, and sometimes dangerous times. We're invited to face our own fears of scarcity in all of its forms. The material scarcity of whether we will have enough financial, emotional, and spiritual resources to meet life's challenges, and the essential scarcity of whether we can ever be truly enough. In the midst of our fear, God is calling us to trust God's sufficiency, to believe that in God we are enough and that our true needs will be met. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or your body, what you will wear. Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. In this passage, we're reminded again that God sees and cares about and will provide for our needs. And we're called 
to trust by limiting our focus to what is needed today. We're also encouraged to be about the work of God's kingdom. It is by seeking and growing into our identity as citizens of the kingdom that we find our deepest needs fulfilled. As the Israelites learned through their experience with manna, seeking God's kingdom is about justice and faithfulness. Manna was created in such a way that no one could have too much or too little. Distributive justice was built in. It was easy to be a good steward of that resource. Unfortunately, built-in justice only lasted while the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, and it certainly hasn't carried over into contemporary life. We know that most of the world's resources are hoarded by the few, while the many, sometimes dubbed the 99%, go without. We have to work harder to be good stewards. That means being good stewards of our own lives. For example, feeding our bodies what they need instead of what the media or the newest fad diet tell us that they need. It means being good stewards of the resources available to us. For example, by following John Wesley's words when he said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And it means being good stewards of the Earth's resources, starting with eating and drinking, which in the words of Elizabeth Grop, can be consumptive acts that violate covenantal relationships or sacramental events that signify and embody communion. Consumption violates the covenant when in spite of the wealth of our country, 17% of Americans experience food insecurity, and about a third of the people across the globe live with acute food deprivation. None of us alone has the power or resources to be but a drop in this bucket. But if we join our personal and communal practices together in an embodiment of communion, we can begin to reverse the tide of injustice. We might do this by bringing non-perishable food items to put in the donation bin here at church, or donating to Maeve's Ride for Food Justice today. We might choose a night each week to set aside to have a simple meal and donate the money that we save to a relief organization. <coughs> We can conserve resources by buying locally produced food and contribute to more just working conditions by buying fair trade products. Eating less meat and especially less beef adds to the food available worldwide because it takes 20 pounds of grain to make one pound of beef. It's also important though that we join forces with our Methodist tradition of social action to raise awareness of injustice and build advocacy for local, national, and international policies that support good stewardship and just distribution of the world's resources. Stay tuned in the coming months for ways you can learn more and join in these efforts. I'll leave you today with a table blessing from the Community of the Ark in France, and I encourage you to use it in your own homes in the coming week. It goes like this. Bless, Lord, this meal from which we draw the strength to serve you. Give bread to those who have none, and hunger and thirst for justice to those who have plenty. Amen.
Now let's sing on page 629. You satisfied. Please stand if you're able.